So we are back in the book of Genesis this morning as we continue to explore the unfolding story of Joseph. I hope you'll turn there with me. If you're not open up to it already, it's on page 33 in the Red Bibles, Genesis chapter 40. And as you turn there, I want to ask you a question. What do you do when you hit bottom? How do you react when life drags you down and then sits on your chest, pinning you underwater? Do you slip into depression? Do you lash out in anger, give way to anxiety? Or do you double down on prayer, throwing yourself on the mercy of God? See, how we handle the low points in life reveals what we believe about God and what we think about ourselves. And this morning, we're invited to watch and to learn as Joseph hits bottom. Here's what we're going to learn this morning. As we walk through this story, we're going to see that God is present with his people regardless of circumstances, and that even in our darkest moments, he gives us vision to see and confidence to act by assuring us that he never forgets his promises. So we first met Joseph back in Genesis chapter 37 when he was 17 years old. He's now 28 years old, something that we'll learn in chapter 41. And for the past 11 years, for the past 11 years, his life has been a mess. It began when Joseph, the favorite son of his father, became the object of his brother's envy. Their unchecked resentment eventually spun out of control as they faked his death and then sold him into slavery. Taken to Egypt by Midianite slave traders, Joseph was purchased by a senior government official named Potiphar. Initially trusted by his master and successful in his work, Joseph eventually fell foul of his master's wife, was falsely accused of attempted rape, and then thrown into prison. When he was 17, God had given Joseph a pair of dreams that indicated that he would one day rule over his entire family. The vision had been clear, but in the decade that followed, the external circumstances of Joseph's life pushed relentlessly in the opposite direction. So that now he's a prisoner in a foreign country, a slave who has no rights and no defense. In spite of this awful series of events, however, God is with him. Last week at the end of chapter 39, we read the following beginning at verse 21 but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison and the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison whatever was done there he was the one who did it the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did the Lord made it succeed Last week, Caleb showed us how one of the major themes of chapter 39 was the steadfast presence of the Lord in Joseph's life. He was present with him when he served in Potiphar's house, and he is present with him now in prison. The presence of God with his people, it's a theme that recurs throughout Scripture. And of the many places in the Psalms that remind us of this truth, two are personal favorites for me. One is Psalm 139, and this is what David writes in verse 7. He says to God, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. 
If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me is night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. So even if he wanted to, and sometimes he does want to, David can't hide from the presence of God because God is always with his people. Well, then there's Psalm 73, where Asaph reflects on a time when he was bitter and self-absorbed and angry with God, but God didn't leave him. This is what Asaph writes, Psalm 73. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. God's with us, regardless of circumstances, whether we want him to be or not. Whether we're grateful or embittered, God's with us. That's the first thing we learn about him when Joseph is in prison. And God's presence It isn't passive, it's active. He holds us, he leads us, he guides us as the psalmists say. And exactly how he does this, we see as Joseph's story unfolds. So let's look at the beginning of chapter 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against the Lord, their Lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? So the baker and the cupbearer were senior members of Pharaoh's staff. Both of them had intimate access to him on a daily basis. Their loyalty and their trustworthiness were therefore essential. Now why they were thrown into prison doesn't seem to matter. All we know is that they were under suspicion and awaiting a verdict from Pharaoh. This would have been an incredibly stressful time for both of them because they knew that their lives were on the line. One night, as the text tells us, both men had dreams that left them perplexed and anxious. Verse 6 says that when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. He saw that they were troubled. It's a very simple phrase but it shows us something that I think is incredible. You know, one of the things that happens to us, happens to most of us when we're struggling or when we're down, is that we become increasingly self-centered. As our problems loom larger, our vision narrows. We turn inward, we review our grievances, we defend our actions, we coddle our self-pity, and often we get stuck there. So stuck, that when things turn a corner or start to go well, we, we can't even see it. 
nor do we see the people around us who have troubles and triumphs of their own. Now, I want you to imagine what 10 years of slavery and prison might do to a person in this regard. Joseph should be an angry, self-absorbed young man with eyes only for himself, but he isn't. He sees these two men who are new to his care, and he notices that they aren't well. He studies their faces over breakfast and he sees the trouble in their hearts. Even though his own life is in shambles, he is still looking up and looking out beyond his own needs into the lives of those around him. When, uh, When Liam McCoy was born, his parents noticed right away that something wasn't right with his eyes. As it turned out, he had multiple conditions that limited his clear vision to just three inches in front of his face. This meant that for much of his early life, Liam only saw indistinct shapes that were shimmering behind this veil of obscurity. When he was 15, Liam had the first of several surgeries to restore his vision, and the results were amazing. But as Professor Susan Berry wrote in an article about Liam in last weekend's Wall Street Journal, the improvements were discombobulating. Surgery plunged Liam into a world of sharp lines and edges. After a childhood of near blindness, Liam didn't recognize the lines as boundaries of known objects. Instead, he saw a tangled, fragmented world. For most of us, seeing is simple because we never knowingly had to learn how to see. We simply saw. But that simplicity is deceptive. We spent our early childhoods, our first few months, our first years, learning how to see, developing neurological pathways, establishing patterns, and building up a bank of visual keys and clues that enable us to navigate the world. Liam, Liam had none of that. And at 15, he had to start from scratch. And it took a lot longer than anyone expected. You know, learning to see the world around us as God sees it requires a similar process of formation and education. We do not automatically see the world accurately, much less according to the way God sees it. The truth is, the truth is our hearts, our wills place filters over our eyes. We don't perceive people. Uh, We don't understand comments and situations in a purely subjective manner, but in a deeply personal and subjective way. So that when you and I walk into a room full of people together, our brains, they take in the same information, but you know we see the room completely differently. If we want to learn to see the world accurately, we have to learn to see it the way God sees it. This takes time and attentiveness and patience. And one of the ways this happens, very simply, is by learning to take our eyes off of ourselves so that we can turn our attention to the needs and to the brokenness around us. Only then will we begin to see God's power to act and to heal and to save. Only then will we discover how God can use us Joseph is a slave in prison. He's a nobody. But he refuses to look at himself and see failure, 
hopelessness and forgotten promises. He knows that God is with him. And because of that, he has trained himself to see the world with God's eyes, a place filled with brokenness that's aching for the glory and for the grace of God. So when those two men turn up at breakfast with trouble on their faces, he can see them. But not only does he see, he acts. Verse 6, when Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we've had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, don't interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Now, if I'd been in Joseph's place that morning, I think I would have felt more than a little bit conflicted about dreams and what they mean. Hadn't the past 11 years put question marks next to the meaning of his own dreams? But you know, Joseph shows no sign of conflict, no sense of resentment. Instead, he says, matter of factly, look, don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. There's so much at stake in these words. Joseph believes that he can understand the dreams of these men. And what this means, what this means is that he's still convinced that he correctly understood the dreams that God had given him 11 years earlier. Same God, same power. Even though his life has absolutely tanked since he dreamed those dreams, he still believes that he understood them correctly and he still believes that they're going to be fulfilled because the interpretation belongs to God. In Egypt at this time, dream interpretation was actually a, a quasi-scientific endeavor. The, the Egyptians actually had schools for studying dreams where they produced guidebooks of standard imagery and associations. Pharaoh had professional dream interpreters on his staff. And so when these men complain that there's no one to tell them what their dreams mean, they don't mean to say that it's impossible, but that they just don't have access to the professionals. Well, when Joseph says that dreams belong to God and then implies that he can interpret them, he's making a remarkable set of claims. Not only is he throwing the professional interpreters under the bus, he's claiming for himself a special relationship with God and therefore putting himself on the line. Now, that takes guts. The cupbearer, figuring that there's nothing to lose, tells Joseph his dream. In it, he saw three branches with three bunches of grapes that quickly ripen. Taking the grapes, he squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, which Pharaoh then took from his hand to drink. Without seeming to pause, Joseph interprets the dream with confidence. In three days, he says to the cupbearer, Pharaoh will restore you to your position. Then Joseph makes a request of the cupbearer. Remember me. Remember me and tell my story to Pharaoh, showing no doubt whatsoever about the accuracy of his interpretation of the dream. Joseph assures the cupbearer of his own innocence and asks him to be his advocate before Pharaoh. Well, the baker, inspired by Joseph's positive interpretation of the cupbearer's dream, then chooses to share his dream. Three baskets of baked goods rested on his head, but before Pharaoh could eat, the baskets were swarmed by birds who stole the food. 
Again, without seeming to pause, Joseph interprets the dream, but this time it's bad news. In three days, the baker will be dead. Notice that Joseph refuses to sugarcoat the bad news, nor does he hedge his bets just in case he might be wrong about the interpretation. He doesn't bother to ask the baker to remember him when he gets out because he knows the baker will be dead in three days. Joseph should be depressed. He should be wallowing in self-pity, focused on himself, and pretty much rattled. Based on his circumstances, he should have no confidence in God and no hope for the future. But here he is. He's clear-headed, he's resolute, and he is unwaveringly confident in God. It's an incredible sequence of events. Well, the story keeps going in verse 20. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. Joseph was right. He was right, and of course it came as no surprise to him when the news trickled back into prison about what had happened. But as Joseph's hopes for release began to rise, he was greeted with silence. The cupbearer had forgotten him. And the chapter ends with that dreadful announcement. It's like a kick in the gut. But as a narrative device, those last lines, they hold a hidden lesson. People are going to forget. They will disappoint you. They will fail you. But God will not. Joseph knows that the God who gave him his dreams when he was 17 and enabled him to interpret the dreams of the baker and cupbearer when he's 28 will not forget him ever. Just as God was with Joseph, so God is with us. And just as God kept his promises to Joseph, so he keeps his promises to us. Fast forward to the New Testament. Before Jesus was killed, he told his disciples that he would send them his Holy Spirit to be with them forever. At Pentecost, he sent that spirit, and he still sends his spirit today to all who put their trust in him. God's with us. He's with us regardless of circumstances. But there's more. Jesus promised that one day he'll return to raise his people from the dead and to renew his creation. He'll come back to set all things right and to raise us to new and everlasting life with him. Just like Joseph, we have the presence and the promises of God. And those are are our anchors in an uncertain world. And with these anchors in place, regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in, God can and God will give us vision to see clearly and confidence to act faithfully. So the last 16 months have been hard, and they've been hard on all of us. Although the pandemic seems to be subsiding here in the States and life is slowly returning to normal, many of us are still struggling. Some lost loved ones, Some lost jobs, some missed out on opportunities or had plans completely upended. 
For others, this past year may not have had any specific low point or tragedy, but nonetheless, you now find yourself struggling with what a friend of mine is calling the COVID hangover. It's that lingering sense that all is not well, but you're really not quite sure how to handle it. COVID, it's left us living between nostalgia and anxiety. Nostalgia for the past, anxiety about the future. And when you live this way, it's easy to become paralyzed in the present, unsure of what to do or how to plan. In these circumstances, I think what the Lord would say to us is this. Look up. Take your eyes off yourself. There are needs around you. And these are opportunities. Opportunities for me to show my grace and my goodness through you. But you need to look up and see. Now for some of us, for some of us, this will require more visual training than we want to admit because we are so used to seeing the world through the filter of our own desires and our own wills. We spent so long focused on the three inches in front of our faces that we have a hard time seeing our neighbors and their needs. It is time to tear yourself away from yourself Set your eyes on others and learn to see them as God sees them. Now for others, this will require a shot of confidence that has been lacking. But I want you to remember this confidence is not in ourselves. Joseph knew that he couldn't interpret the dreams on his own. That power belonged to God and God alone and it still does. He's the one who leads us into truth and will show us how to act. So I want to encourage you very simply to do two things. Pray for God to give you eyes to see the world clearly around you and the confidence to act boldly and faithfully as he leads you. And you'll do that as, as you're anchored in his presence and in his promises. Let's pray for these things together. Lord God, we give you thanks and praise that you are present with us. You have promised us good things, salvation, eternal life, and a renewed world. We pray that your presence and your promises would hold us in place as anchors regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. And we ask that here, anchored in your presence and your promises, that you would give us vision to see clearly the world around us and confidence to act faithfully, to act boldly in your name and for your glory. Amen.